And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 72 today, DMT and Alien Information Theory with Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Uh, Andrew Gallimore is a computational neurobiologist, pharmacologist, and chemist interested in psych- uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, specifically DMT. Um, how are you doing, Andrew? Pretty good, thank you. Good to be here. Hey. Great to have you on. Just uh, finished this baby yesterday. <laughs> awesome. uh, super thought-provoking. I'm going to have to read it again, though, because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I needed to spend more time on, mm. um, specifically some of the scientific aspects of it. Uh, but uh, what is this just a culmination of all the research you've done so far, or was this some sort of breakthrough you had, or what was the background behind this book? Uh, kind of a bit of both, really. I mean, I've been writing... Um, I've been thinking about DMT for 20, 20 years, I guess, but been thinking more seriously and, and bringing my kind of scientific training um, to the table over the last sort of 10 years. And I've been writing a lot about DMT and giving lectures and discussing DMT. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it, it kind of appeared to me that I had something like a, a cogent, coherent narrative a kind of a story to tell um and and that was that was basically the book so it kind of felt right that you know i'd 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 reached the stage where i needed to put all my ideas down and into one coherent narrative um and basically that's where the book came from so so the last two years uh i've been kind of writing the book and uh, then you know illustrating it and designing it and typesetting it and you know, all of that stuff. It's a, yeah, the yeah. illustration's uh, super interesting, and I think it adds a ton to the the actual uh, data that you have in there. Um, now, you start off the book talking about how, as a scientist, you had kind of a certain worldview, as most scientists do, going in, and um, you had a background. You know, you talk about Terrence McKenna and dabbling and stuff in your teens and stuff. Mm-hmm. But once you tried DMT. Um, it was a completely different ball game. So, what was that like as a as a paradigm shift for you? Oh, it was it was it was shocking. I mean, you read. I mean, from 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 kind of the age of sort of fifteen or sixteen when I first discovered Terence McKenna, um, you know, you, you listen to his lectures or to the kind of the fragments of lectures that you could find on the kind of the sparse nodes of the early web. Uh, so this was back in the late late 90s um, when the the internet was still in its infancy really and um you, you read i know I, I bought terence mckenna's books i bought true hallucinations i bought you know food of the gods and this kind of thing and you read this extremely kind of baroque and flamboyant language that terence used to describe it you know death by astonishment and you know this and you 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 kind of absorb it and you think wow that sounds awesome and amazing but it cannot prepare you um, for the actual experience. And it, it, it was, it, it, when I first experienced DMT, it really did leave me confounded. I could not believe it. Um, you know, Terence McKenna described, you know, he, the first time he took DMT, he described the sense of this is, this is not possible. How could this have happened? And, and, and that's really what happens. It, it completely leaves, leaves you 
it throws you for a loop really and and I, it left me reeling and i realized that it was going to be difficult for my scientific mind my you know my neuroscientific from within the kind of the orthodox neuroscientific paradigm to kind of explain exactly what the hell dmt is and how it has these effects and so i, I i've spent the last few years thinking about that and writing about that and trying to approach the dmt state from a neuroscientific perspective and say hey can we explain this you know, do we do we have to invoke alternate realities or can can we really tackle the the almost facile assumption that that many what you might call standard neuroscientists or psychologists would, would position that would, which would be to say oh it's just a hallucination um and that's easy to say and it's easy to dis dismiss dmt as a hallucination especially if you've never taken it um mm -hmm. but as someone who has taken it and it's you find actually that the the neuroscientific paradigm is, is left wanting and so i've i've the first paper i wrote about dmt called building alien worlds um really critiqued this idea and said, okay, let's think about how we understand the brain works. Let's think about how we know the brain constructs your model of reality, which is the world that you live within. Um, and, and then can we kind of use that scientific underpinning to explain how DMT works? And I found that actually it's difficult. Um, and so this leads me more and more over the last few years to actually taking seriously the idea that DMT really does provide access to autonomous and some kind of autonomous reality that really is populated by you know, this diverse range of intelligent beings that are actually conscious and that actually exist from their own side. Yeah, no, I mean, it's super fascinating. Uh, and I guess the other interesting part about the beginning is, you know, you said if you were to describe it, you would describe it as a textbook from the future. Yeah. Yeah, um, so it's 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 difficult to know when I came to start writing the book. Um, there's a number of approaches you can take. You can take a standard kind of scientific approach and write a kind of, you know, this, it could be this, it could be that, and here's the evidence for this, here's the evidence for that. And, you know, you could write a kind of very, very scientific kind of book. Uh, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something kind of different. I wanted to present kind of my vision. Of, of reality, if, if you like, and actually present um, something that many would think is perhaps going a bit too far. You know, I'm, I'm slightly, as I say in the introduction, um, is, is that some would regard what I say as being slightly more definitive than that actually the evidence suggests. But you know, it's not a work of scientific rhetoric. I'm not trying to convince people that this is the correct true model of reality. I'm just saying that you know you need to look deeper. You need to think about what you assume, your, your assumptions about the structure of reality and your place within it, and, and what DMT actually is and actually how, how it works. Um, so it's, there's certainly a, there's a, there's a very clear scientific underpinning to everything, and it's very, in a sense, a very, very scientific book. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff in there that I hope yeah. is, is, is well explained. Uh, so it, it's, not a, it's not a book for just for kind of professional scientists at all. It is meant for an amateur audience you know the, the the interested curious layman is 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 my is my target audience here so you don't have to have a, a phd in, in in neuroscience to understand it or physics or anything like that to, um but oh, that's perfect for me <laughs> <laughs> it's right up maurice's alley no but uh 
the the one thing that I thought you did a great job of that I always wondered about, and I've read descriptions and everything like that, but how you know the serotonin receptors, the five HT two A receptors, play off of the psychedelics such as psilocybin, DMT, LSD, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, the five HT two A receptor. This is this is absolutely central um, to understanding psychedelics and the classic psychedelics. Uh, but I think what's difficult for a lot of people um, is a lot of people know that DM that psychedelics bind to this particular serotonin receptor, but making that connection uh, to a, a drug binding to a particular receptor and then having these effects on consciousness that requires quite a little bit of unpacking and reassembling and actually you have to go into quite a bit of neuroscience uh, and work from this kind of to receptor level kind of this protein molecular level uh, through to understanding how that affects um, neurons uh, and then how that affects the kind of the global activity of the brain and how that results in these changes in, in this kind of the structure of your world that, that, that psychedelics uh, affect. Um, so um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time trying to, trying to get that clear path from, from binding to a receptor to these, these effects. Um, which I think is quite important if you're going to understand psychedelics. You've really got to understand exactly what what is actually going on in the brain when you actually when you actually take one of these drugs. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's one of those things where, I mean, there's obviously different compounds, and you do get into it. You know, all the different ways that they touch base. But I saw a picture in there. I wanted to ask you before we get into. Mm this stuff deeper yeah, there's a uh, illustration you had with the uh, jellyfish and uh, okay. i i actually this had one. an experience with yeah 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 Him. i had an experience with um uh, uh, uh molly i was um after a concert and it had still been racing through my body um and i was laying MDMA. in bed yeah and i was laying in bed yeah, and yeah. uh I don't know. It was just it was just all jelly, colorful jellyfish for like two, three hours. It was probably one of the more intense closed eye visuals I've ever had. Oh wow! Yeah, I I I, I don't know if it is a jellyfish or whether it's an octopus. Uh, <laughs> there was one here. I think you because you sent me a couple slides too. This thing. This is this is. I don't know. Is that a jellyfish or an octopus? That one's an octopus, but you do have one yeah. that looks more like a jellyfish too. I do think. I? Not in the book, but on one of the. I think it was one of the slides. Ah, oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that could have I'll been pretty pictures. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was just curious what you thought about that, like in terms of like the closed eye visual stuff with some of the psychedelics and um, the way that you know how what is that doing? You know, it, if you can put it into layman's terms. Yeah. So, so to begin with, you have to kind of understand of where where visions, where all visions come from. And, and, and you know, whenever you open your eyes and this kind of world emerges at, apparently out of nowhere, um, is that this, this world is always constructed. It's always constructed actively by the brain. And your brain is constantly, your brain is a world builder, is, is something I like to say. And, and the brain, using these patterns of activity, these patterns of activation of, of the billions of, of neurons in the brain, um, you... This pattern, this pattern of activity is, is essentially a, uh, a distributed but integrated pattern of information. And that is the, the world that you experience. And your brain is always constructing um, your world from moment to moment. And normally when you're awake and you're kind of having a, 
you, you're normally you're you're not on the under the influence of any kind of drug. Your world, your, so your brain tends to build a very stable, predictable model of, of reality that that works in some way, um, that allows you to make predictions and allows you to you know kind of know where you are and everything feels fine. Um, and the brain, when you go to sleep as well, when you start dreaming, your brain actually starts building worlds in exactly the same way. And, and most time, and most dreams are actually very, very similar to waking, um, almost like continuous with the waking world. So, so that, kind of, that kind of demonstrates really that your brain is a very good world builder. And your brain has this desire, not desire, it's the wrong word, um, but it, your brain, there is this n natural tendency of the brain to kind of self-organize generate these patterns that manifest as your phenomenal world subjective world that you experience and what psychedelics tend to do um, is they you know your, your brain has essentially evolved over millions of years to construct this stable model of reality and it does it by changing the connections between the all of these brain cells these neurons in the brain uh, so they tend to generate very specific patterns of activity and these patterns are organized into networks and it's, it's highly organized system um, and what psychedelics tend to do is they, they kind of override all of that. And you, you get, uh, the, kind of loosen up these, these constraints. Um, so you get something, what I call a, a democratization of, of brain patterns where, 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 where patterns of activity that would never normally be expressed tend to be expressed under the influence of psychedelics. And so you know, if you put someone in an MRI machine and you can measure their brain activity, what you tend to see and this is kind of pioneering work done by the Imperial College team, is to demonstrate that the brain tends to, there are kind of a greater, what they call a repertoire of, of patterns uh, that can be generated under the influence of psychedelics. And the brain seems to move through these patterns of activity in a slightly more kind of random way or random appearing way. So the world goes from being stable and predictable uh, mm -hmm. to being unstable and unpredictable and, and fluid and novel and richer. So it's a the, the world under the influence of a psychedelic is still constructed by a brain and it's not a it's not a distortion of reality um or an, a less true version of reality it's it's a it's a modified version of reality that, that is more fluid um and, and and much less um stable much less predictable but often much richer so a greater the brain can essentially absorb a, a a much greater range of, of different patterns of information from the environment than it can um, under um, under normal normal circumstances. People say that the brain is is a, it is in a sense a filtering mechanism, and the brain does have this filtering mechanism in that it can only absorb patterns of information that tend to match and kind of resonate in a way that makes more sense uh, with the yeah. information already being generated by the brain. Uh, and so, by overriding that. The, brain can absorb more information and so the world becomes richer um, but perhaps not less it's, it's a slightly less functional world in that you couldn't navigate and live within a psychedelic world all the time uh, because of that fluidity because that that um, the ambiguity of, of the, the the brain loses its ability to organize the world as well into separate objects that you can kind of interact with um, so that's why the, the psychedelic state is so amazing is because it becomes incredible. You know, well, the world is literally built anew by your brain, uh, but it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a very different world. It's a fascinating world to live in with for a few hours, perhaps, but then you need to come back down and, and live in the much more functional, uh, mundane world of, of, of everyday life. Absolutely. Uh, no, that was 
that was a good explanation. Um, and we can get in now too, because that actually is kind of what you were doing with the cellular automaton too, was kind of describing the way that information's built, right? Because that's the premise of your alien information theory book is that everything's pretty much is data based. Uh, is would you consider it simulation or not? Or no, no. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. The reason is people do say this, and people have even described the book as as an exposition of, of a simulation theory. It's not because people use the word simulation without really often, I think, really thinking about what they mean by simulation and sure. defining what is a simulation. Well, a simulation is a simulation of something. Uh, for there to be a simulation, there needs to be at least two things. Uh, the real counterpart, i.e. That, that thing that's being simulated and the simulation. Um, so that, so, it, so if, if you insist that our world is a simulation, uh, people often use that to mean it's, it's, it's digital or it's computed. Um, but that's not the same. Um, it could be a computed, digital computed world and yet still not be a simulation. If it's a simulation, that means there must be a, another world that's kind right. of exactly like this, but the real one uh, that right. is perhaps fundamentally different and then perhaps its fundamental structure is different. Um, but uh, and this is just a, a model, if you like. But I don't think there's any reason to believe that. You know, that comes from, well, there's lots of, you know, it's more the like a theoretical physics like Nick Bostrom and that's Bostrom, Tom yeah, Campbell there, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Right. So Bostrom, so Bostrom's premise, if you, I mean, his famous paper, are we living in computer simulation or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, basically his idea was that in the future, um, once humans reach a certain level of, of computational Techn technological sophistication that they will start running sim ancestor simulations, he calls them. And that's very specifically a simulation because you're simulating humans in the past from their perspective. And so the idea is that we would be one of those an ancestor simulations of this post-human. That is very much definitely a simulation um, mm -hmm. because they, he's, they are simulating humans from the past. But I don't think that that's... That's not what I'm talking about in the book. In the book, it's the, right. that reality is fundamentally generated from information, and this uh, this information is instantiated by a fundamental code, fundamental kind of algorithm that that um, essentially uh, instantiates a world rather than simulates one. So it's a version of reality, but it's not a simulation of some other reality. That makes right. sense. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so. When you, you know, I think in your book, um, well, obviously, when we're talking about this, it has to do with like the brain function, everything, you know, in regards to that. And now we're with faster and faster computing, you know, and, and data and all that. We're able to kind of try and recreate what's going on in the brain. But obviously, there's still no great explanation for consciousness, you know. Mm. Uh, so that's why I, f I found your book also interesting. It's kind of like a different way to look at this whole phenomena um, altogether than what's usually, you know, and all these consciousness pages and threads and even in the scientific data and everything. Um, so do you think with the faster computers get, uh, the more information we'll have on this, or sure. I mean, I think consciousness will will. I, you know, the hard problem of consciousness. You know, why does the you know we know that the brain generates the information that that is our world, and 
know, we, we can you, you can demonstrate that if you change if you if you damage the part of the brain that represents color information in the world for example you you, you know you, you end up with a world that's monochrome loses right. its color uh, and there are other things as well easily demonstrate that but what that doesn't explain is why that information has a, a within how that with how that why is there a, sub, a subjective right, right why is there something it's like to borrow from thomas nagel's famous phrase why is there something it's like to be this pattern of information you know why why does why is there a subjective side to it why does and i think that that is that's something that's not going to be tackled by any kind of um uh, progress in in sophistication of, of computer science at all that's something that's fundamental um i think so i think personally i think that consciousness is much more fundamental than that and, uh, and that's not a um it's not a fringe position anymore it's, it's certainly not new age or, or woo woo to say that you think that consciousness is fundamental and a lot of very serious scientists and philosophers now um as many others have for, for centuries really taking the idea now idea seriously that that the consciousness is fundamental and the consciousness sits behind everything and that you can't explain um you can't explain consciousness subjective consciousness in terms of um some kind of objective reality and, and that was kind of the mistake i think that was made going back to rene descartes was the idea yeah. that we need to separate the world into the subjective and the objective um that which exists objectively independent of consciousness and then the subjective side which is of course what we experience um and then bizarrely despite the fact that Descartes famously demonstrated that there's, you, you can deny everything apart from your own consciousness. That's the only right. thing you can't deny. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, and yet, from there, we got to let's forget about consciousness or let's kind of put it to the side and let's assume that the objective reality is, is kind of is, is, the mo is, is more fundamental and that later on we'll be able to use objective reality to explain one's subjectivity. And I think that's... That was always going to fail, and it and it has failed because it's we're, we're still it's still called the hard problem of consciousness, and people have tried to dispense with it, but I've I've not read anything um, that that satisfactorily dispenses with the hard problem apart from saying that consciousness itself is is fundamental, and I think we need to accept that now is that that we can explain things in terms of the structure of consciousness, and I, I you know I think of I think of. The, the world that you experience is being a kind of is constructed from information but that information is generated yes by patterns of act of information generated by the brain patterns of activation by the brain but you can think of that more fundamentally as being um, patterns of activity of consciousness if you like um but you know you're getting into kind of deep territory there um, no, I mean, I, I agree with all that, actually. I mean, I think that, you know, that's one of the main premise of our show is consciousness, whether it's psychedelic drugs, meditation, near-death experience, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just one of those phenomena that um, as much as, you know, skeptics and scientists try and say, oh, it's this or it's just a, in, you know, a psychedelic reaction that we're just not aware of at this point you know it's always something that they think that'll be explained later but they don't yeah. ever think that they can look to alternatives now to try and figure it out but yeah it's it's, it's called promise promissory science where you you say i can't explain it yet but i will be able to in the future just give us 10 years and we'll, we'll get it work work it out and they've been saying that for the last 100 years or so right or longer um, they can probably know, just get, work and, and i always look at it like they can work themselves into it no matter what like you can always find some sort of path to prove what you want to prove in some sure. way that's not an ultimate truth so i think that. oh yeah 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 and you every every week you will get a, a, a you know on on these science 
forums that will pop up on my newsfeed will say, oh, scientists have new theory of consciousness and like scientists explain consciousness using this or scientists right. explain consciousness using that. And you actually read it and they say, well, no, they haven't explained consciousness. You know, they've explained something, they've explained attention or they've explained this aspect of, 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 of brain function, but never do they actually tackle, you know, yeah, but why does this have a, why is there something it's like to be? Why is, the, why is there a within? Why is there this subjective aspect right. to, to, to our existence? And that's never been tackled. And it, and it won't be, I don't think. I think it's, it's, it's not a problem that can be solved using, um, using a kind of, uh, this kind of materialist dogma, if you like. Sure. Um, so let's get into uh, dimethyltryptamine now. We, we, yeah. uh, we've been dancing around it here. So um, <clears throat> what, is, what is your personal take on dmt entities when you're inside the realm let's and usually mm. it seems to be more intense when people smoke uh dimethyltryptamine or 5-meo um as opposed to doing ayahuasca which ayahuasca has other uh psychoactive components and and uh, yeah. you, you obviously need the uh the uh, harming to uh allow the maoi you know to do its effect so yeah w what's your take on the dmt entities yeah, so so you're right about ayahuasca versus DMT, and and when people take ayahuasca, normally the brain levels of DMT reach about twenty percent, and that that you can achieve by smoking it by injection. So this is why it's it's, it's very different. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I take these entities very seriously. I mean, I I, I always go in and. When I'm either whether it's me personally or whether I'm, I'm reading about other people's experiences, but I, I always go and go in with the approach of okay, let's assume that these are actual intelligences that have emerged um, and you know evolved within their own reality, and let's um, you know see what they can tell us. And um, I, 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 in my own personal experience, I find that. There's a very, very profound sense of extreme intelligence there, um, way beyond anything that that is even conceivable within within our our world. You know, perhaps you know even within our universe, really, um, not just on Earth. Um, I, I, I see that, and and you're you're confronted with that when you first and you burst into that space. There's a very strong sense that this is a, a reality that is that hasn't just emerged recently you get right. a sense that it, it's 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 orders of magnitude older than our universe you know it, this is a, a reality that is has been around for you know an unfathomable amount of time um sure. and, and and you can one can't even imagine the level of intelligence of an alien species for example that is maybe a few thousand years ahead of us right you know, somewhere else in the universe. You know, imagine a spe alien species that's a million years more advanced than us. That's even more inconceivable. Now, try and imagine uh, an alien species from an alternate reality mm -hmm. um, that is that is, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years old. Um, Actually, Sir Roger Pemrose mentioned something along those lines when he was on Joe Rogan the last time, uh, where he said if there were to be aliens he sees these things called eons, which is like the previous universe that before the Big Bang or whatever, that if there was an alien race or whatever, they would have encoded like photons 
with their signature so that when we experience that we're receiving this information so i thought that was kind of interesting and yeah 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 i think i think we we're kind of wedded to the idea of this it's a great science fiction story actually about doing it on uh, uh, doing life on meat look it up but it's really good okay <laughs> but <laughs> this but this idea you know we're kind of wedded to the idea that you know that living organisms are kind of constructed from protein and they they're kind of wet and um, right. kind of messy kind of creatures, you know. Uh, but actually, when you actually think about what is life, right, that's a really good question to ask people. What do you mean by a living organism? Um, what constitutes something living or something versus something that is non-living? Um, and people can give you kind of hazy answers. Um, um, but, but actually getting a really good, a good kind of um, formal definition of, of what is living is actually less than straightforward and that's something i also tackle in the book um, because if you're going to deal with uh, alien intelligences that are you know alive and conscious then you need to think about well what do you mean by a living creature um and it's not necessarily uh, a creature that is you know made of warm and wet sure um, you know it, it's actually in life is really a pattern it's a particular pattern of information um, that maintains itself and regenerates itself and replicates itself. That's all we are. So we are fundamentally an extremely complex, hierarchically organized pattern of information from, from the ground of reality up. And, um, and what's special about a living organism is that it, uh, it, it's, it's um, like Fritz Capra called it, life is a factory that builds itself from within. So it's it's a structure that maintains its 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 boundaries and may, it's a process really. Mm -hmm. So you know, a, a cat is um is a process of catting. True. Um, yeah, just like a whirlpool is is a is a is a whirlpooling of water. Right. Uh, the whirlpool is is a process. It's it's the it's the dynamics of the water that defines the whirlpool. In the same way, uh, a living organism is something that um, is a pattern of information that is able to maintain itself and regenerate itself um, over time and, and, and that's what we recognize as something living and so that doesn't have to be you know something we would necessarily recognize as living but could be as something very very extremely different uh, extremely different uh, but you know some kind of pattern of information um, that was you know almost you know inconceivably different to what we're used to experiencing in our kind of parochial little world that we live within so it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, if, if if these kind of patterns of information, these living organisms, could be, you know, dispersed, um, perhaps you know, around the universe in some way that we find very very difficult to to understand. So, why do you think um, some people experience the DMT entities as archetypes, whether it be? And I'm just saying archetype is in a way to ex explain the phenomena, uh, like a jester or joker. Some people mm. experience gray aliens. Some people experience God, Jesus. Uh, I mean, I've heard, I've read, and we've interviewed tons of people, you know. So the other mm. thing they say is it's more real than real. Yeah. Um, these entities convey messages of love, or sometimes they get flipped off or told you're not supposed to be here. Yeah. Um, so what do you, is that just a... Um, Kind of like how our world is, where there's some good people, some bad people. Is it that kind of a thing, or because it's oh, just yeah. in a different realm, or do you think that uh, there's something going on within the brain that's, you know, that's the way it's manifesting to you? Okay, so there's a couple of points there. So first of all, um, yes, I think that the the character and the intent of of these entities, whatever they are, can vary dramatically. 
I don't think you should assume if you've never taken DMT that it's going to be sweetness and light in there. Um, it's an extremely complex hyperdimensional ecology, really, that has fortunately many, many kind of uh, benevolent beings that are that kind of interested and want to help you and are kind of wise and have got beyond kind of viciousness. Um, but then there are those kind of vicious beings as well that do exist that will taunt you and, and, and mock you and, uh, you know, those kind of things. So, yeah, you have to be, be aware that, that that can happen. Uh, but in terms of how they manifest, what you have to remember, uh, and this is kind of a fundamental mistake that people often make, is that is, is going back to the idea of, of what is real versus what, what is not real. And people often mm -hmm. distinguish that by saying, you know, what is if it's not real, it's all in your head. And if it is real, it's not. And, and yeah, reality is always, always all in your head in that you're always constructing a model of reality. I'm not saying there isn't a world out there, but I'm saying that the world you experience is always constructed. So your brain has to receive information from the environment, whether it's the normal kind of environment we're used to, or whether it's this bizarre hyperdimensional environment, and it has to construct a model. Um, of that environment and, and of the beings that are within it. Um, and so, you know, when you say hi to your your friend in the street, your, your brain is constructing a model of that, that individual and it always does that. Fortunately, it tends to do it in a very um, kind of stable and you know, predictable way. So you, you always recognize unless you're on acid or something. Um, mm -hmm. Um, but so when you enter this space, your brain has to is receiving this information and it's interacting with these intelligences and it has to construct a model of that reality. So even if the DMT world is a real real place and these beings really do exist, your brain still has to model that reality for you to experience it. Um, so it's not surprising to me that the brain will kind of grasp for the, the, the nearest kind of archetypal structure in order to try and make sense of, of this world that it's experiencing. Um, so yeah, when you when you you, you meet kind of mischievous uh, beings and it's not surprising that, that the brain tends to default to this kind of trickster archetype or, mm -hmm. or you know or, or if you see meet a loving being um and, and you happen to be quite religious perhaps that you know a christian or something then you, you might you might reach for the jesus archetype or you know right. hindus will often reach for the shiva archetype you know so i think that that makes sense the interesting thing about yeah. that is too is because I, I remember you were saying you know in the late 90s you were getting into all this stuff um when we were in high school in the 2000 early 2000s uh Irwids, you know was popular among people that were you yeah. know taking psychedelics and uh, we always did research before we tried anything yeah. um and one of the things that we kept reading on there was was dmt and it was like the final frontier of all of them based on the trip mm -hmm. reports i remember reading it the guy's like i dropped my pipe and started yeah. convulsing backwards and it's just like you read it and it was almost not like scary but scary compared to like eating an eighth or a quarter of mushrooms and, and well, even it seemed that, highly intense compared to yeah and even that was like a lot but it just seemed like yeah, this yeah. final frontier of this is it this is the one that if you do it you're gonna see something because tv movies society um you know they all portray it you're seeing pink and pink elephants dancing around and you don't yeah, really yeah, see yeah. any of that uh, for yeah. the most part on, on most psychedelics uh but it seems like dmt you do go into this alternate reality you do experience mm -hmm. hyperspace you do experience you know um i thought the people on the spirit molecule did a great job of trying to explain what they were experiencing um but at the end of the day i think now even though you're seeing more people talking about this there it's the trip reports are still consistent consistent with the ones pre internet explosion pre youtube videos yeah, pre all yeah. pre all that so
yeah yeah that's this is one of the things that's that, that I, th I find most remarkable about dmt is that is this the, this, these very characteristic features of the DMT experience, and I, I certainly wouldn't expect that everyone would have the same, exactly the same experience. Um, certainly, you know, any more than I would expect an alien that was dropped onto a random place on Earth would would have the same experience. They would, depending on where you landed, you know, you would have very very different experiences. Um, so certainly, I don't expect someone who bursts into this this highly complex realm that they would all end up kind of in the same kind of place and have the same experience. But what I would expect that there would be a certain character um, that, that would be very, that would, would mark it out as being DMT-esque, if you like. And that does seem to be the case and that people do describe going to the same kinds of places and meeting the same kinds of beings. Um, and <clears throat> people have tried to explain that as a, Firstly, it's kind of McKenna effect is that you came to McKenna was talking about, you know, the machine elves and, you know, back in, <laughs> you know, from the 80s onwards. And it's like, well, you know, that's where people got that idea from. Right. And, and you, you can never really, uh, you can never really kind of get rid of that. You know, that's always going to be there, unfortunately. You can never, it's very difficult to find a kind of completely green population of people who you can, well, maybe you could. You perhaps would have to go somewhere uh, to some kind of yeah, community within the world, yeah, that had no experience of psychedelics and, or DMT before, or had a, no access to, um, you know, Terence McKenna's recordings or trip reports, that kind of thing. Right. And give them DMT and say, okay, what what happened? That would be fascinating if it could be done. I mean, you can imagine there's a lot of. Uh, hoops that you'd have to jump through to be able to actually do that. But that, as an if, if I was an anthropologist, that would be kind of wow. That would be the ultimate, right? Right. Um, to be able to do that and, and take you know detailed record detailed notes, you know, and recordings of their trip report. That would be cool. Um, but what what something that I did with a, a psychologist called Dave Dave Luke, you may have heard of, a famous yeah, kind of psychedelic psychedelic psychologist, the uh, the psychedelic. Um, I think, what do they call him? The psychedelic Indiana Jones, I think they <laughs> something Oh, like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but he's really cool. And um, we wrote a paper together a couple of years ago now um, called DMT Research from 1956 to the Edge of Time, where we we, we actually went back and we, we interviewed the, the discoverer of DMT, the guy that actually synthesized DMT and tried it on himself back in 1956, Steven Zara, Hungarian physician. Okay. Um, he's, like, he in his, he's in his 90s now, but he's still going strong. Still... You know, sharp as a, you know, well, absolutely, yeah. Maybe it's and, the fountain of youth, you know. Yeah, I was gonna or... say that's a good proof that it doesn't really harm you. <laughs> there you go, yeah. And 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 we went back and we got some uh, some of his, his very very earliest papers from his earliest studies, and we actually chart we mined the literature to find the very very earliest studies and tried to just tease out what kind of little fragments of trip reports were in there. Unfortunately, in those days, they didn't really. They weren't that interested in what you saw or you know the content mm -hmm. of your experience. They just say, you know, complex hallucinations were experienced, something like that. But occasionally, right. uh, they would, you would have a little kind of nugget in there where they would, the, the individual would actually describe their experience. And there's a very, very famous study now that also Rick Strassman wrote about in DMT, the Spirit Molecule, was a very early, uh, um, one of the very earliest DMT studies in humans where somebody describes a um, little little um what are they like little little black creatures like dwarves moving quickly um which many people including myself kind of take as the the world's first uh, machine elf experience mm -hmm. right um which kind of suggests that uh, and then it, you know there's also lots of reports about meeting 
gods and meeting intelligences within this space. If the language differs, um, in those days they, they would tend to call them spirits. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would, they would say, you know, the, the, the room is full of spirits rather than the room is full of aliens or something like that. So the language is different, but I think um, certainly the experience of, of meeting intelligences um, to give the kind of the broadest possible term, you know, intelligent beings, entities, um, certainly goes back um, to that earliest, uh, those earliest studies. You know, when people were taking DMT in the 1950s, um, just after it was discovered, they were going, you know, they, was, they were describing these, these complex procession of visual imagery. So, you know, they were explain, bursting into a, 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 a new world. Mm -hmm. um, again, they described these new worlds, meeting intelligence. So they might describe variously as spirits or gods. But clearly, um, the experiences people are having, modern psychonauts are, are experiencing and reporting, uh, are not a, a postmodern sorry, post-McKenna kind of um, uh, affectation, but actually does it does seem to be a fundamental feature of the experience. Sure. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you, too, about the, the entities. Um, we've had our other buddy, Jack, on. He runs the Trip Whip channel on YouTube. He's got some pretty good uh, trip reports and talking about the machine elves and, and stuff he's experienced. But we had him on, and we were discussing and speculating. And his idea is that, uh, you know, kind of food of the gods-ish in a way, but that our mind has this built-in, obviously, pareidolia where we're just connecting dots on a normal basis. And then you smoke DMT um, and you go into the world and it dissolves, you know, almost like a lifting of the veil in terms of like ancient times, if you will. Um, and in the, the true nature of what we could experience is there. So what's your, I mean, I know you kind of, Talk about that in your book too, but what's your your take on that? Yeah, I, I don't think I think one has to be kind of careful about talking about the true nature of reality. I think I think the world sure. we experience now, you know, a normal waking world, that's it's true. It's it's a real reality. Um, reality is always an artifact. It's always um, um, it's always a constructed reality. We always live within a, a constructed reality, and that may change depending on circumstances, uh, depending on what, whether it's a, a healthy brain or a sick brain. You know, the world of a schizophrenic might be very different to the normal world that we experience. Um, but we can't say that they live in a, a less real world or a less true world. Sure. Um, so their world might be more true, in fact. Um, but I don't think, you know, the brain has no yardstick for measuring truth as such. The brain is simply trying to build a model of reality that works. You know, does the model of reality allow you to make decisions about behavior? That's fundamentally it. Does, does your model of reality make it more likely that you will survive uh, and that you will reproduce? That's the fundamental, that's how evolution judges things. It, it can, the only way that evolution can judge things is in terms of, you know, does it make, what's, how does your model of reality affect your reproductive success? Does it make it right. more likely you'll pass on your genes or does it make it less likely? Uh, and a bad model of reality is not less real. It's simply um, less likely that you will survive with that particular model of reality and thus reproduce. Um, so, so unveiling, yeah, I think unveiling in that there are, I described reality, I wrote an essay called DMT and the topology of reality in which I just explained that reality is kind of fluid and that reality is whatever you are experiencing at a particular time that is a reality and, and realities vary in their in their complexity and in their function and in their fundamental nature 
and and realities can give you different kinds of information um so yeah you know you can uncover things in that certain realities might pr provide greater insights into certain things and and at least fundamentally show you that reality is not this fixed thing that, that kind of exists there independent mm -hmm. of us but we are we are both we are immersed within and we are you know interdependent with this reality and we're constructing this reality from moment to moment um and and that 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 reality can change and 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 we shouldn't say that you know this is a distorted reality or a false reality uh but it's simply a different version of reality which which may have kind of different functions or different sure. things to tell us and we might learn different things from from different different versions of reality yeah it just kind of rang true with me i had a uh, severe ocd that conventional medicine just let me down cbt therapy and all the serotonin pills they're trying to feed you with all mm. these different reactions yeah, yeah, yeah. uh so i actually resorted to psilocybin reset my mind and what i realized what ocd is is almost like a repetitive thought pattern it's i don't think yeah. it's as much of a imbalance as people because everybody's depressed i mean if you if you live in this this bad thought pattern of course you're going to be depressed so i think it has more to do with that than it did the actual physical chemistry of my brain that was just well my take. I, I think it's i think you're absolutely right in that you can explain many kind of uh, neuropsychiatric conditions so ocd depression anxiety ptsd you can always think about them in terms of um pathological patterns or patterns thought patterns you know that you know if you're depressed you're you're locked into this negative everything that happens is is bad and it, it feeds into it and you get locked into this pattern you know the brain is um the brain is a world builder and the brain generates these patterns of activity but the brain is also changing itself as it as it does when you learn something for example you learn a new word you're learning a new language and you learn some new vocabulary what's actually happened there is your brain is structure has changed slightly mm -hmm. um, and that's happening all the time when you think in a certain way you're, you're also changing um, the brain's activity and if you get into a state where you're constantly thinking negatively your brain actually will tend to default to that and this is why people get locked into this uh, mm -hmm. and same with ocd or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder where you might be reliving this this, this traumatic experience um and, and so yeah what psychedelics do uh, and we kind of understand this now is that you kind of said like a reset right some people describe like a snow globe uh where yeah. you just you know you you basically you reset all of those system the system becomes very unstable for a while uh, and if you're in the right place and you're with the right people and perhaps with a with a good therapist maybe in, in some cases uh, you can you can whilst the brain is in that very kind of fluid state you can start to reorganize if you like and reorganize sure. into a much better pattern uh, and this is this is going to be absolutely revolutionary uh, you know the idea of re you know pressing a reset button on the brain and and, and just get you know expunging these negative uh, um patterns of activity and replacing them with positive ones that's yeah i know, you know ketamine's be... been super successful too with sure. depression and stuff oh yeah yeah very rapid uh, you know most antidepressants take two three four weeks to start yeah, working with Zoloft, lexapro all those take <laughs> yeah. at least almost two months they say sometimes yeah too. yeah and, and normally it's pretty nasty side effects the first couple of weeks oh, it's as well. terrible you know it's anxiety terrible. and just ugh. so aren't, the, aren't those pills designed to like just generate serotonin though are they 
Like what? Mm. Are, what are the? What are those? Don't yeah, those I drugs think, just? Yeah, I think it's supposed to help replenish your. There's no. There's not that buff or nor, that nor, normal or not yeah. normal. But people that are 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 in the normal state of mind, you know, they have that normal buffer. But when you don't, you don't have that serotonin there. So yeah. So 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 basically, I mean, there's there's different hypotheses, and this kind of serotonin hypothesis of, of, of depression basically says that you've got too little serotonin and so uh -huh. what what these ssri so like prozac fluoxetine they do is they block so basically what happens is when you're when neurons in your brain they release serotonin uh, into what are called synapses these kind of uh, basically allows them to stimulate other neurons and this is how they work and then you have these special channels or like like, like uh, vacuum cleaners that kind of sucks the serotonin back up so it clears it so it's released and then cleared away again. And what these SSRIs do is they block these these channels that suck up the serotonin, so it stays mm -hmm. in in the synapse for longer. Uh, and so this is if the effect of that is to increase levels of serotonin. However, if that was the reason they worked, then people would get better within a few hours. You know, it takes it takes a few hours for serotonin right. levels to rise in the brain, but it takes two or three weeks. Or longer for the actual antidepressive works and so what's actually happening is the the numbers of receptors you get something called up and down regulation which basically means um, that the numbers of receptors uh, serotonin receptors on the neurons are changing they're either being increased or they're being decreased or the, the way that they behave is or could also be changing and so you know when people take um, these antidepressants you're, get, you're getting much slower changes in the brain that are taking place over several weeks while rather than just a you know increasing the amount of serotonin which itself happens very very rapidly so clearly um it's very people don't really understand how sure. antidepressants are working uh, just like how we don't really understand how the universe works either but people exactly. pretend so like they don't do. understand <laughs> they, they, they pretend you know we have models you know always you know people think you know, have to remember that science is never settled on anything, right. uh, you know, you always you always have a model, and models interact with each other, and you're always rethinking your models and refining your models, and sometimes throwing them out and replacing them with entirely new ones, which you might call a you know, paradigm shifts and that kind of thing. Um, Maurice's favorite uh, Brian Cox, he loves him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. He doesn't like him at all. I just thought that was free because Brian of... Cox is like the complete materialist reductionist scientist. You know, he's yeah, he's yeah. He's got this permanent smile, hasn't he? He's got this very. Oh yeah. Kind of, I don't know if it's his cheeks. He looks like, uh, you know, and he, he looks like he's out of a, you know, some kind of early two thousand electronic music band, which he was, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So perfect, the fitting. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. No, I, I just, I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I like the open-minded people. I'll just leave it at that. Right. When you um, put your foot down on something, it's like, well, what, what do you really know? You're, you're. You know, you're going to yeah. discredit all these other theories. <clears throat> that just shows me that you really maybe don't know what you're talking about. So. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's it's difficult. There are some cases when people, if you know, if someone tells me that the Earth is flat, then I will, I will, I will, I will go yeah. to town on them. Right, right, right. You know, because some some ideas, theories do obviously come from a position of ignorance, um, uh, right. and, and that's demonstrable. Um, however, other people have ideas that don't come from ignorance but come from a, maybe a slightly different worldview you know and if, if an amazonian shaman were to come up and say that um you know and start talking about the spirit world and the, the, the spirit the plant the plant spirits and things mm -hmm. i wouldn't have a an opinion on that because it's not my it's not i'm i i, I didn't i wasn't born within that 
that world. And so I've, I've no right to judge. Sure. Uh, and I think it's wrong to kind of dismiss that particular way of looking at reality. They have a different model of reality that, that kind of works for them. And, you know, absolutely, I've, I have no problem with that and certainly wouldn't cause it, call it you know, primitive or, you know, kind of denigrate it in, in that way. So, right. so I think, right. so, you know, you have to have an open mind and um, realize the limits of, of what you, you know. And, and certainly once you get into sort of scientism, as it's often called, and, and you are very kind of intransigent in your dogma and dismissing things. And certainly it's, you meet that a lot when you're discussing psychedelics, particularly DMT and people like me, what are supposed to be um, scientists who are, <laughs> you know, betraying our profession, my profession by. Uh, I think it's necessary. <laughs> I think, I think you need people. I need, I think you need a lot of people talking about it. Number one, whether they're doing it research oh, or sure, whatever, yeah. but I also think that you need actual scientists like yourself who have a background in this and understand the phenomena to to you know start doing research on it because like anything else whether you know you got like dr Eben alexander the famous near-death ex, you know experiencer who wrote the book who was a harvard you know neuroscientist and stuff like that so i think that you need these people that experience these things to speak up and start talking about them and obviously do you know the research and uh, get that that door open but why do you what's why do you think the specifically why the um the dmt molecule because there's stuff i mean what psilocy or psilocin's one molecule away so why even though you do experience similar effects um you know mushrooms have kind of a built-in um maoi if you will that allows you to just eat it and experience it you don't have to take a, a separate thing or anything but why do you think specifically dmt is just the next level is there something about the, the molecule or <laughs> yeah this is a really good question because you're right that, that so, so so silicin as you pointed out is very close so silicin is actually for hydroxy mm -hmm. dmt so it's, it's, it's actually the only difference is, is an oxygen atom. It's inserted between the carbon and hydrogen on, on this, uh, this ring, uh, this phenyl ring, or the indole ring, really. Um, and so, yeah, so, so psilocin um, has quite different effects to DMT. It doesn't seem to. People say in very high doses, actually, it starts to approach DMT. Uh, yeah, but, I've, done, I've done 10 dried and when I was younger. Okay. And okay, that, was, right. that, that, was, that was hyperspace for sure. So. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of the great mysteries of 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 of, of neuro of neuropharmacology is is why do dr drugs that are often very very close to each other, um, why do they have such profoundly different effects? And we kind of start to understand that now. Is that you know if you if you ask somebody that question thirty or forty years ago, they might struggle to give you an answer. But what we know now is that for a start, when it's not enough just to say, for example, that a, that a psychedelic binds to this. So a particular serotonin receptor, this what's called the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, it's not enough to simply say, um, in kind of classical pharmacology, you have kind of, you know, two or three different effects when a, a drug binds receptor. You have what's called um, antagonism, which is when it binds the receptor, but it does nothing. Uh, so it blocks it. Um, mm -hmm. You have, the opposite is agonism, which is where it activates the receptor. And then mm -hmm. you, you have in between, you have something called partial agonism, and, 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 and there's also... There's another one as well, but we're getting a bit more technical. But anyway, uh, and so a partial agon agonism is when it partially activates the receptor. Um, but now we know that that's a massive oversimplification and that actually the way a receptor works, so a receptor is this big protein that sits in a membrane in the, of a cell uh, and, a, and something binds to it on one side 
called the ligand, uh, could be a drug. And then it basically causes the receptor to change its shape slightly. And then on the inside of the cell, where you have the other kind of side receptor, um, the intracellular domain, it's called, uh, this then binds to other molecules inside the cell. And these activate these pathways, and you get what are called second, uh, second messenger and, um, and these complex signaling pathways. And it's these that actually cause the effects. Okay. Um, and what you find is that different drugs with a slightly different chemical structure will bind to the receptor in a slightly different way, different conformation different orientation, and they cause the receptor to change shape in slightly different ways. Um, and then this causes, on the, on, the, on the inside, it causes the receptor to bind to different signaling molecules, so you get completely different effects. And so rather than a receptor kind of being on or off, which is kind of the classical idea, uh, you actually have the receptor can occupy a whole range of states, depending on which drug is bound, and this will cause a whole range of effects. So you can imagine now a drug that binds to maybe you know, one receptor strongly and then maybe three or four or five or six other types of receptors. So it could be dopamine receptors, it could be noradrenaline receptors, it could be you know, various types of receptors in the brain, uh, all binding to these receptors in slightly different ways and activating them slightly differently. And so you can imagine then, you can start to imagine the kind of complexity that can emerge. Um, do we know yeah. when we started to develop uh, the MAOI inhibitor and all the stuff that, you know, is there a certain point we can look back in our evolution and say, this is when we developed this, these receptors, or is, is that not known? Yeah, so well, serotonin is, um, is a very old molecule, and certainly these receptors of various kinds are often very old. Um, so... You know, you could probably um, trace receptors of various kinds back to the very, very earliest single cellular organisms. And yeah. a, recept a receptor is a way of um, getting information from outside the cell to inside the cell, essentially, without mm -hmm. having to actually pass something in. So it's like, you know, if you want to make, you want to speak to somebody, you can call them on the telephone, right? You don't have to actually go to their house. Right, right, uh, right. You right. Can, because, the, you know, you can transmit that information um via the telephone right you know using patterns of you know electrical activity essentially sure. and so what what a receptor is is as a general thing is a receptor is something that takes information from the environment and it could be a molecule it could be glucose uh, so imagine in an early cell you're trying to find the sources of glucose right how good would that be uh, right. imagine if you had a receptor that bound to uh, glucose and then signaled inside the cell that there was some glucose but you could you know follow these concentration gradients, and that would obviously be very, very useful. Uh, but also light as well. You know, we we have photoreceptors in our eyes, which which um, have a, a mo molecule that actually um, causes the the proteins in the eye, a protein called rhodopsin, to change shape. And this this signals to the brain that that a photon has just hit this receptor, mm -hmm. and this is then processed by the brain to generate the experience of the visual world. So, you know, receptors are ubiquitous. They're they're fundamental to understanding how the brain works. Um, but you know. We only they have many layers of complexity. There are many, there are several different types of serotonin receptor, for example, um, different classes from kind of one. Yeah, to I think seven in your book where you say seven, there's seven. Yeah, of them? exactly. And then each, within each, so so two the serotonin two receptors that particular subtype, uh, particular class, then has two A, two B, two C, etc. So you get different mm -hmm. subtypes within it, and and they all have like different effects. And then each receptor. Um, so, you know, can then have many different orient different states that it can exist in, depending on which 
molecule is bound on the on the outside and so you know extreme complexity starts to be generated so it's perhaps not surprising when you actually have you know two molecules that look very very similar chemically but actually when you think about how they're going to bind to these different receptors it's you know it can be uh, very difficult you know you, you're basically you're putting a, a molecule into a com very complex system and it's often very very and you're what the molecule is doing is is slightly perturbing it's tickling that complex system in, in a certain way uh, and 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 that the, you know the effect of that is uh, is often very very difficult to predict and it's much greater than you would imagine just by the very very simple difference the very very close similarities of the actual uh, molecules themselves sure well, that's interesting um what do you think about uh DMT in regards to, you know, I read also read Rick Strassman's DMT in the Soul of Prophecy uh, with like ancient civilizations. Do you think that they were able to, I mean, I know in like the Middle East, uh, you have, you can get Syrian rue and uh, tamarisk and acacia varieties are all over the place. Do you think that yeah, yeah. they were doing that kind of stuff or? Yeah, it's it's out of my it's out of my expertise. I, I was just, I was just curious yeah, what you thought. I mean, I, I wouldn't rule it out and I think hallucinogens, psychedelics, drugs that make you go out of your mind in a sense, um, plants of the gods, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call them. There are obviously many, many, many different types and varieties that seem to have been used across the world. There are very few civilizations that have a complete absence of psychoactive drugs. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I, I think if you're going to look back to the ancients who were building extremely complex structures that we struggle to explain even to this day mm -hmm. the idea that they wouldn't be they wouldn't have also discovered means of changing their consciousness i think is perhaps a little bit special pleading i think so yeah no i was just curious what you thought about that but let's let's segue now into what the work you're doing uh with rick and trying to develop this technology to um like an extended stay technology intravenous uh uh, DMT, uh, like, was it like a slow drip or what's the, the technology? <laughs> yeah, so the, the technology is called target controlled intravenous infusion. So it's a, it's a technology used by anesthesiologists to maintain a, a kind of stable level of, of a, a general anesthetic drug in the brain. So what, what they normally do is that they want to put you to sleep for, you know, two or three hours or during the, the, the extent of a particular uh, operation or some sort of surgery uh, it's what they, they 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 inject you with a short-acting drug puts you to sleep but then um, they then use a, a programmable infusion device to actually deliver a precisely controlled dose of the drug into your circulatory system and thus into your brain um, that's informed by a very detailed understanding of the way the drug distributes through the body and the brain and how it's metabolized and all that kind of stuff you need to understand that very well mm -hmm. um, and then you can basically, if you get the, the infusion rate right, based upon this, this kind of modeling, mathematical modeling, you then um, can maintain a stable level of the drug in the brain, um, which allows you then to kind of push you deeper into the anesthesia or bring you to a more shallow state. Um, and it, it kind of struck me um, back in sort of 2015 when I was, was thinking about DMT and sort of the idea that DMT is a technology that should be developed as such. And it always struck me that people would often describe going into this this realm and the realm is just beginning to stabilize they were just beginning to interact with, with entities and then they were being dragged back in, into the normal world um and so i thought there must be a way to extend this that doesn't mean 
um, taking ayahuasca or you know oral, mm-hmm. using oral uh, uh, Maui's, but actually to extend extend the experience using this kind of technology. So I looked at the kind of the pharmacological characteristics of DMT and, and realized that um, that it you know possessed all of the you know, the requisite characteristics of these anesthetic drugs. So um, you know, it, it's very short acting. It doesn't build up in the body. It doesn't have subjective tolerance. So you can give somebody repeated doses and they, they have the same intensity of experience each time, uh, which Rick Strassman demonstrated back in the 90s. Um, which so is I different thought, than like uh, psilocybin, Alice. I mean, if you right. eat mushrooms the night before and tried to eat them again, you're not going to have up. the same effect. Yeah, you're, well, you're not going to have the same effect. Even if you did yeah. that, I don't, I don't think it would produce the same effect. No, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is the problem. Um, so, but DMT doesn't have that problem, which is kind of another fascinating characteristic of DMT, one of these pharmacological peculiarities. So, so I thought, okay, this could work. Uh, this is just a, an idea. And so I, I sent Rick an email and said, do you have the blood sampling data? Because to actually implement this kind of technology, you need to have samples of people's blood. So you can make the concentrations of DMT in people's blood over time. So okay. You inject them with DMT and then every 30 seconds or so, you measure the concentration of DMT in their blood. And so you get this curve that looks like this. So it goes what's, the highest, what's the highest you've had or on sample? So the highest is, a, is kind of, it's normally around sort of 120 nanograms per milliliter. And you um, said 20 is what you get from doing ayahuasca? About, yeah, about 20, yeah. Okay. 50, 15 to 20, something like that. It's like, a, like, tw- like one sixth or so, it's less than 20%. Okay. Um, yeah, so so we did. So I emailed Rick, and I knew I'd seen one of these traces in his one of his papers in the '90s. So I knew that he must have had the data at some point. So I emailed him, and he sent me. Luckily, he had the data tucked away on a hard drive somewhere. So he sent me this Excel files of this data, which meant I could actually do the the actual modeling work. So I built this this what's called a pharmacokinetic model. It's a mathematical model of the way that DMT is distributed throughout the body and the brain and how it's metabolized. Um, and then was able to kind of demonstrate that DMT, you know, would, that it, this technology would actually work with DMT, that it wouldn't kind of build up, and that you could actually maintain a stable level of sure. DMT in the brain. Um, so we then published that um, in the paper in, in 2016. Um, it's, it's a proof of principle, really, um, demonstrating that, that this technology could actually be used for DMT. And so you could actually bring someone into the the DMT space, induce them into the DMT space with DMT, and then you can hold the level of DMT in their brain reasonably constant within some sort of window, um, so that you could, you know, they could remain within the space for for much much longer periods of time, stably without having with, with complete control. So it's not just like giving someone a very high dose um, right. where you know, you know it tends to spike and then come sure. down again. You know, you you you, bring, you can bring them into a certain level. You can bring them in quite slowly. These all these things can be achieved. So you can ease them in, um, you can pop them in and then hold them there. You can bring them out slightly, you can push them deeper. Uh, you can have complete control over the, over the experience, ideally, um, which is you know, something that you could never achieve with, with ayahuasca, uh, which people often say, you know, that ayahuasca right. is the same idea. It's not. Ayahuasca is it's certainly extended with ayahuasca, but it still rises, reaches a peak, and then it falls. Well, I think that's why maybe it's more therapeutic too, because it's kind of like you have, if it's not as potent as what you're talking about from smoking or intravenous or whatever, um, it might allow you to do that work and actually have one foot in, not reality, but closer than 
you know, just smoking it or, or doing that. But would you ever try this experiment? Like, would you ever be a subject for, for this? Is that, does that interest you or no? Yeah, it does interest me. I mean, it, you have to be pretty intrepid and fearless. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm not. <laughs> I or have you I, already tried it on yourself? Uh, no, no, I haven't. It's like I'm flatliners. Not, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like that. Not far off that. You know, and I'm, I'm often amazed at the, some of the psychonauts that you kind of you read about and read some of the reports of them, mm -hmm. the drug combinations that they take. And it's like, wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm in awe of some of these people. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who can just, you know, take. 30 grams of mushroom and then hit, take a hit of DMT. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have, I have limits, you know, that's, that's, that's just my, my nature. So the idea of being within the DMT, I mean, something you could work up to, you don't have to be in there for, for two hours. You know, you can, something you can build right. up to. And that's the great thing about the technology is that, is that it allows you to have that control and that you can bring someone to a, to a level, you know, you can bring someone to a therapeutic level. And this is something that, that Rick, for his kind of part of the paper, um, he kind of discussed quite a lot of, of the idea that you could bring someone to a sub breakthrough state where they would be mm -hmm. communicative um, and you can actually have, as you say, one foot within the normal world uh, and, and the, it bring information back and forth. And, you know, you can think of a, a number of different uses for this technology. And my original desire, my original idea was that it would be a, to, to establish communication with you know, interdimensional intelligences you know it was pretty science science fiction mm -hmm. but one can imagine much more kind of um down to earth so to speak uh, uses for this kind of technology that could be um therapeutic so it would be allowing to sense to have kind of an ayahuasca experience uh, in a sense a kind of ayahuasca experience um an intergalactic ayahuasca. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah at a, lower, at a lower level where you could actually work with it i mean do you ever level. think about it might be too woo woo but do you ever think that maybe you know we know you know about quantum entanglement do you think that since what you're saying you're suggesting is everything based on information and data that maybe that data is tapping into something else and maybe you're bridging the gap when you do this or maybe it's some sort of um interdimensional you know leapfrog kind of a thing where you're you're headed somewhere else does that ever is that is that too woo woo it's not weird at all. That's exactly what I, I propose in the book. No, yeah. no, I, I know, but I just mean, but, I, but, I, but I just mean in the sense that, uh, like, when you when you talk about it, is that something that like other scientists? Um, oh, I see. You know, t do they take that seriously, or is that something that you know is just in your line of thinking? Um, that tends to be me. I mean, uh, yeah, people struggle with that idea, and I, I have made it slightly more palatable. I think, uh, so when people, basically, it's not new that people have said, or people are convinced that DMT does allow them to access an, an alternate reality. Uh, but from a scientific perspective, it, it's quite difficult. You have to, there are a number of problems with that. Um, the problem is not the existence of an alternate reality, by the way. That's, that itself is fine. There's nothing mm -hmm. within physics that says there can't be alternate realities populated by intelligent beings. The problem is what I call the data input problem, is that how, do you, how does information from that reality enter your brain? And that, that's what's got to happen fundamentally. Um, so what I've been able to do is frame the problem much better. You know, people have said before, oh, DMT tunes the brain to a different reality. And that's kind of a bit hand wavy. I was like, what does that mean? How do you, the brain is not a radio, you know. Right. We know how a radio works. And, and it's a good analogy in a sense. 
um, and it's quite useful, but it doesn't really explain what's going on. And so what I, do, I take great pains in the book is to try and, first of all, frame the problem correctly. You know, DMT doesn't take you to another world. It allows the brain to receive information from that alternate space and for your brain to construct a model of that space, which is basically what's happening in this world. You know, your brain is receiving information from the external environment via the senses, right. and it's using that information to construct its model of reality. The same thing must happen if, if, if DMT really does allow you to go to another place, is that the, the somehow information must be gated by DMT into the brain from this alternate space. And so that's, 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 that makes it more palatable because there's a clear problem that's defined here and, and, and there's a clear solution to the problem um, that I discuss at great length in the book. Um, right. Whether many scientists would say, no, I don't believe that, that's fine. Um, um, but you know, I've, I've laid my cards on the table here. I've said, okay, this is, this, these are the assumptions I'm making. Um, this is how we, we get from that fundamental basic assumption about you know, a digital reality, kind of a digital physics. Um, and this is how we go from there, step by step, um, through to DMT accessing high, into this high dimensional space. So a lot of ground is covered in the book, as you, you know. You know. We start right. from very, very simple beginnings. You know, what is information is kind of the first, very first chapter, right? Sure. Uh, and then you talk about complexification of information and patterns of action, and then you know, hierarchical. Well, I mean, even, even that is, is kind of complex when you describe with the cellular sure. automaton. Sure. And, and I mean, sure. it's not overly, but it's, it's, you have to pay, you know, you can't just like, read it in passing you have to really pay oh, yeah, attention yeah, yeah. while you're reading it yeah, yeah, um yeah, yeah. but when, when i asked you the question i actually meant traveling that's what i meant and that was the different you know you're talking about receiving the information and the data i'm talking about yeah. physically time traveling to somewhere else completely different is kind of what i was going after yeah i think you have to again it's it's you know what do you mean by traveling and what do you mean by physics and obviously you, you remain in that world and then what 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 is it that travels i guess is the question you need to be quite clear about what you mean by traveling you know if right. you if, for example if i put on a, a virtual reality headset a complete one uh and i was receiving the exact sensory information um let's say i was um in las vegas right uh mm -hmm. and i was stood on the strip right um and 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 i, I and basically that information was fed to me and I was sat in my room in Japan, um, but I was receiving exact all of that sensory information um, that I would have received had I been stood on the strip um, right. in Las Vegas, right? In a sense, I've been transported there. Everything I see is real. You know, when I, when I look up at the hotels, I can actually see them. Everything that's sure. happening there is actually happening because I'm re receiving that sensory information in real time. Mm -hmm. Have I traveled there? In a sense, I have, right? The world that I'm experiencing in Japan is gone and it's been right. replaced by a world that, you know, people can actually verify everything that I'm seeing is actually what's happening. Uh, and that will be something in the, in the future. We, we're moving definitely to what we're close, not that far from that kind of experience now, where you can, you know, somebody could stand within, you know, the Arizona desert and, and have the, the right sensors set up and that feed your information directly into your, your sensory system, uh, you know, even sure. perhaps your olfactory systems, you didn't get the smells, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. that more, much more complicated, I think, that. But, but certainly, you know, you can move around and you would be in that place. So in a sense, you've traveled there and then that the information your brain is receiving is from there. Um, it's, it's actually not that different from the idea of actually traveling there. I think the idea that you have to take your body 
um, with you. Right, I guess it's is, the physicality is, aspect of it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, the, I think, yeah. Uh, no, I, I like I said, I, I love your book. I think it's amazing. And I think I've been waiting for something like this for a while because I think every time I, I read, do all this research or reading on consciousness and whether it's people near death or experiencing different phenomena, um, it's always under the assumption that that's something that's physical. And I always argue that it's something non-physical, that it is something within our consciousness. Obviously, like you said, we can't really put our finger on consciousness. So it's very hard to determine that. But, um, and, and at the end of the book, you talk about like kind of what we were just talking about, like the final frontier, the, the, mm -hmm. the final objective is to use this technology to gather more data. Um, now, do you think that's possibly this alien world or aliens feeding us this stuff? Or do you think it's more us being able to receive it by going into these realms? I think it's probably a combination of both. I think um, I think we should, you know, we should treat this, the DMT place as this, this new world in, in a very real sense and a world that we need to learn to navigate and learn to, to understand the, the natives. Um, so I, I, I see this as the beginning of a, of a grand expedition in which it's, it's going to be not just psychonauts, it's going to be anthropologists, it's going to be psychologists, it's going to be linguists, and mathematicians, um, neuroscientists, you name it. Um, all of the, you know, um, theologians even, you know, you can imagine all the yeah. different types of individuals that would be required. You know, if you've seen that film Arrival, right, where, where oh, yeah. Being right, and they bring in, you know, apart from the military, they always you know, we don't need them. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they, always the first ones to come, man. <laughs> we'll be the first ones, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, you can about you know, you have to bring in all these different people and, and get all these different disciplines. People will bring different skills, try and understand what you're dealing with. And it's the same kind of idea here you're going into a new world, you don't know the culture, you don't understand the intelligence, you don't understand how they communicate. Um, mm -hmm don't understand the structure of the place um you know it's a high dimensional space it's, it's very difficult to navigate so you can need these uh, you know topologists and uh, you know mathematicians that can understand different types mm -hmm. of spaces and how you might formulate how you might map them and linguists to, to think about language and communicate anthropologists you know mm -hmm. what kind of questions what you know, what kind of experiments are you going to do what kind of questions are you know how are you going to approach them all these things um so it's, it's it's a very it's it's quite an ambitious i think expedition that's going to be it's not just somebody who's going to lie down close their eyes and then kind of come back <laughs> with the, all the answers i think it's probably going to be much more complex than that um but you know that's that's the game i think yeah what about um these like dmt psilocybin some of these things uh, even dreams you go to this alternate Maybe it's not even alternate. Maybe it's just another level of consciousness. And you, you have an experience, you know, it feels like, you know, more real than real. Uh, and you come back and it's this beautiful thing for a couple minutes when you come back to it. And then you forget most of it. What do you think's going on there? <laughs> yeah, I think this is the Taurus. I mean, you can train yourself to remember more. I think the problem with, with DMT specifically um, is that often the brain struggles to, to kind of reformulate um, that this kind of the, the reality is, is bear knows no relationship really to the normal structure of our waking world. And so when you come back, your brain is 
it, it, almost like the brain is unable to structure or even conceive of that world unless you're on DMT. It's, it's sure. this kind of yeah. the, the problem is that you're trying, you realize, you remember yeah, it was extremely complex and there was these intelligences being there and then it kind of goes away and you kind of, you know, within right. two or three minutes, it's like, fuck, you know, um, what just happened? So is it maybe like learning a language and being really good at it and then not using it for a few years and then forgetting most of how it worked kind of a thing? Yeah, but, it, but, but kind of on a, a much higher level. So at least with a sure. language, your brain kind of, there's a fundamental way your brain understands languages, you know, there's a language center. Right, right. But here you're talking about the brain is, is constructing a high dimensional space, completely alien reality in a very, very literal sense. Um, and it does that. Uh, under the influence of DMT, and then you are kind of expecting it to kind of recall that and kind of bring that to mind. I mean, if someone said to you, "Think of a, a nine-dimensional cube now," yeah, so that, you I, can't I've do seen it, pictures, right? but I still can't <laughs> think of it. You, you know? can't do it. Right. So that's kind of, in a sense, that's what you're asking your brain to do. In a sense, is to say, um, you know, imagine a, a nine-dimensional space, you know, right. full full of seven-dimensional creatures or what's the thing from string theory the uh, kalibi yao manifold or whatever like you so, can't exactly. you can't visualize that can't no matter visualize. Who, yeah. exactly and so that's what so, so i think what you have to do is train the brain to to kind of take those aspects of the experience and kind of um you get like a lower dimensional projection so if you think of a um um a sphere right and trying to imagine a sphere how would you draw it well you draw it as a circle right on a piece right. of paper that's how you do it. It's a two-dimensional projection. Mm -hmm. So, in a sense, you kind of have to train the brain to do that. Is what's the what's the three-dimensional projection of that space? If that makes sense. Right. That's what you're training your brain to do. Is to, to find structures that it can then you can kind of download uh, into this this space and make sense of and describe in this world. And I think that's quite difficult, uh, especially coupled with the kind of the shock and the astonishment of this, of the world. So I think it takes training, it takes experience, it takes a long time um, to actually, to do that, to actually train yourself to, to, um, to, to, to bring, bring information back that you sure. can actually make, make sense of. No, that well, makes that's almost like that's like all the psychedelics. You take acid. You when you're in the middle of it, you feel like you figured everything out, and then when you come off of it, you can't <laughs> can't really tie it all together. So yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, it takes yeah. a special it takes a special mind. Some of these writers, you know, they can pull out of it, and they kind of you know can translate what they've what they've seen. Yeah, in a I've been or, you know. I've been taking notes when I've been in those worlds recently. So, you know, maybe I yeah, some idea. of the stuff I don't recognize when I get out of it, though. I'm like, oh, what did I mean? by that yeah yeah, you know? yeah, yeah yeah um so it is this it is an alien world so your book's absolutely spot on with the alien information theories when you do go into these realms i mean i know we're talking about dmt but um when you go into these realms you are pulling information from somewhere where it did not exist before nor does it exist in everyday consciousness and reality so yeah um but uh yeah thank you for coming on this has been <laughs> super super thought-provoking and awesome yeah. and uh really appreciated your book everybody uh get his book alien information theory you can get it on amazon um yeah, yeah i got mine uh i think it only came, it took two days three days to come in the mail um it's hardcover too it's, it's nice yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. bought a hardcover book in a long time. I was kind of excited. Uh, yeah, yeah. There will be a paperback in the future, but um, I think I wanted it to be yeah. a nice, yeah. a nice thing. This guy's not messing around here. <laughs> messing around. That's so you can beat people over the head with it and really teach them. <laughs> yeah. Figuratively um, and 
But also check out his website at buildingalienworlds.com. And we're going to have the links uh, for Yeah, we got book. the links down below. So Yep. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on. We'd love to have you back on in the future, maybe after you do some of those uh, the trials with the uh, extended uh, release. And maybe you'll have tried it by then, and you can sure report thing. back. Sure thing. All right. Andrew Gallimore, thank you for coming on. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you.